Okay, good morning, guys. Let's get started. <clears throat> I hope I can get through this message without having to go potty. We'll see. Um, anyway, it's good to be back with you all. Um, we're going to start chapter 22 today. This is the last chapter. Last chapter of this book, the last chapter of the Bible. So we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of when this uh, exegetical study started. I never dreamed it would have stretched across the decade. So we may as well stretch it out till January so we say we did that. But it's a blessing to get into this last chapter. And this last chapter is a very pregnant chapter. There's lots to say. We finish up uh, uh, the vision John sees of the, the, the future home of the believer, the bride, the lamb's wife. And then we get into an epilogue. An epilogue where we're transported right back to John's day on the Isle of Patmos and where what is written is written not just to him, for him, to the believers of his day and for the believers of his day, but to us living in these last times. So I look forward to that. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to read you something that I came across this past week and it uh, really should convict us because history has a funny way of repeating itself and human nature inevitably repeats itself and what's really sad is when those who are making the same mistakes that others made before don't have eyes to see it either because they're ignorant or because they're willfully blind and deaf so this was a statement made by someone who lived at the time and wrote about it. And it, was, it describes the period of time when Adolf Hitler had come to power in Germany and was seizing uh, territory and making Germany great again. And then the anti-Semitism started to come out. And then the evils started to come out. And it says this, Hitler's sickness was contagious the nation was catching it as if it were a virus. Individually, as this writer, this is the one writing, can testify from personal experience, many Germans were horrified by the events of November 9th, 1938, by the Inferno. Does anybody know what that was called? It's called the Crystal Nacht, the Night of Broken Glass. Apparently, there was a Jewish refugee who murdered uh, some German official. You know, kind of like these guys that go out and shoot up the schools. And it was a perfect opportunity for the media and the propaganda machine to get in there and blame all of Germany's trouble on the Jews and how the Jews had this plot and this conspiracy to overthrow the Reich. And it stirred up the people. And so from November 9th through 11th, the people and gangs and BLM-type crowds were stirred up to destroy a lot of property. And there were a lot of Jewish synagogues, Jewish businesses, and Jewish families were targeted. And so buildings were burned down, glass was broken. Uh, after that, insurance companies refused to compensate uh, Jewish business owners for their losses. And so it was one of the first large pogroms carried out against the Jewish people in Israel. And so, it, you know, you see the same thing today. When these school shootings happen, the timing's always real convenient. 
for the government to start pushing the disarmament of the people. And so you begin to wonder what's really involved. Like the guy down there in, in Texas, okay? Just a simpy young man. If you punched him one time in the face in our dojo, he'd never get up again. But somehow he had his hands on these extremely expensive uh, semi-automatic weapons and all of this ammo that I can't afford to buy, that the average man can't afford to buy, and you just kind of wonder, where'd the guy get the money for this stuff? And so this kind of garbage goes on when there's evil in power that's trying to stir up people and divide people. And so we shouldn't be surprised. But there were a lot of Germans, when this took place, who were horrified by it. Horrified by it. As were Americans and Englishmen and other foreigners living in Germany. But... Neither the leaders of the Christian churches, nor the generals, nor any other representatives of the quote-unquote good Germany spoke out at once in open protest. They bowed to what one of the generals called the inevitable or Germany's destiny. And so that was written down, I believe, in in 1950. Uh, and so what you had was you had a situation where people were horrified, but nobody spoke up. Not even the leaders of the Christian churches. This sounds so familiar. There's a lot of these quote-unquote leaders of the Christian churches in America today who simply bow to what they think is inevitable. In fact, we've had a doctrine amongst Christians in America for a while when it comes to voting and the election process. The doctrine of settling for the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. Guys, settling for the lesser of two evils is what produces that. It's what produces that. And so I think we need to understand this and move away from it. You know, voting the lesser of two evils is evil. And it's not speaking out. Speaking out is not to vote, in my opinion. At least it's more of a speaking out than what these Germans did. But we've got so much garbage going on in this country that the church doesn't speak out against. We have, as a body, but the church in general. It should have spoke out at once against the tyranny that arose during the COVID chaos. And it should speak out at once now against all of this social justice and uh, 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 gay and and transgender mafia garbage. If we don't, we're going to end up with this. We're going to end up with this. It's, It's almost funny how history repeats itself. And the cowards of today who refuse to heed history's warnings are going to meet history's same fate. The ones that didn't speak up in Germany, we're going to be just like them. We're going to meet that same fate if the Lord tarries. And our testimony will be tarnished forever and a day. And so these things are not new. These things are familiar. And that's why history and human nature are two of the greatest lesson books outside the Bible. But when you don't take time to know them, just like when you don't take time to know the scriptures, you won't be able to discern between good and evil. And that's probably one of the greatest weaknesses and faults of the American church today is an inability to discern good from evil because we don't know our Bibles and we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going. So in that spirit, I'd like to get into Revelation 22. 
And the first five verses are kind of separate from the rest of the chapter. The first five verses are a continuation of this detailed blueprint of the new Jerusalem that um, uh, began back in 21 verse 10. And so we've talked about the city's descent out of heaven, its substance, its walls, its dimensions, 1,500 miles length, width, and height, its construction, and its nightlife. We just wrapped that up. Its nightlife is actually a nightlight. Its nightlife is actually daylife. Its nightlife is not a party. It's praise and worship. Its nightlife won't be the dregs of society crawling out of their holes, but a steady stream of, of, of those bringing glory and honor to the Lord. And its access will be VIP only. So we talked about that. I want to get now into what I would say are the city's civic affairs. It's municipal administrations. It's external affairs and it's internal affairs. And we're going to look at that today. But before we do, and as an introduction to chapter 22, I want to remind you again, as I have many times, of the theme verse of this entire book. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, John is told exactly what to write here. And if we remember this, and we follow the outline that is given to John then it'll be easy to interpret this book. And some of the things you struggle with or struggle being convinced about in terms of eschatological issues or the doctrines of end things, and and you're thinking, well, other good brothers believe this and that, and maybe it's not so true. Let me tell y'all something. You know what a line in the... This may not be a line in the sand for you, but you know what a line in the sand for me is? I'm drawing it right here. And I'm not stepping over it. That's the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Amen. And I'm going to tell you right now that those who teach a post-trib rapture and those who teach a mid-trib rapture, I don't care how great they are as preachers and I don't care how bold they are as preachers. They're wrong biblically. Amen. I'm not moving. The Lord Jesus Christ could come for His church at any moment and we better be ready. And without a pre-tribulational rapture as taught in the Scriptures... And as I've clearly outlined for everyone through the study of this book, there is no imminent return of Christ. So for me, that's a line in the sand. Doesn't mean I can't fellowship with folks, encourage folks, go out and witness with folks. But I'm pretty dogmatic because I believe the Scriptures are clear on these things. And if we just follow this outline in the book, a lot of the difficulty or the confusion would fall. But John 119, or, or Revelation 119, remember, this is the theme outline. This is the outline we're operating on. Write the things, John is told, which you hast seen. What he'd already seen right there in chapter 1. The things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Very, cl- very simple, very clear. What he saw was a vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, are the letters to the seven churches. And then chapter 4, verse 1 says, we're going to now look at the things which are hereafter. Hereafter what? Hereafter the churches, the church age. And we don't see the church mentioned again until later in the epilogue of this book. And so I just want to remind you the three-part theme of this book, the things John had seen, the things which are, and the things which are hereafter. 
chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. This is the end of the third point, the things which are hereafter. And then we get into an epilogue where we're back in John's day with some concluding exhortations. In the last part of chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, we're back on the Isle of Patmos. And John is given an exhortation, one last invitation to the reader, a warning, a promise, and a benediction. And then the book comes to a close. But again, we're still here in the, we're still dealing in the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter what? The close of the church age. That begins with the rapture. We see it in chapter 4, verse 1, when John himself is raptured up into heaven. And those of you who may be struggling with that doctrine, remember that in chapters 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. It's not on the earth. They can't stand before the Lamb and say, Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. You couldn't say that unless the church was there. So, we're talking right now about the church's eternal home. And that awaits us. So let's look at the, the city's ex or its civic affairs. I don't know how else to describe this. We have some external civic affairs in verses 1 and 2. And we're going to look at that today. And then we have some internal civic affairs in verses 3 through 5. But the external affairs are very simple. That which flows out, that which affects what's on the outside of this city. Very simple. Two external affairs. A river of life and a tree of life. Let's look at chapter 22 verses 1 and 2. And he showed me. This is after we've talked about the city's nightlife. This is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river there were, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Amen. So we have a river of life in verse 1. And it's sourced in the throne of God and in the Lamb. So in this new Jerusalem, there is no temple. The Lamb, God, and the Lamb are the temple. There's no need of the sun or the moon. God and the Lamb are its source of life. There is no temple, but there's a throne. And out of this throne, waters proceed. The source of this water, the source of this river, is the throne of God. That's in this new Jerusalem. It's not any longer separated from creation by that great canopy, that great dome, that, those frozen waters of heaven upon which sit the throne now that separate God from His creation. It's in this city. It's the same throne that we see, I believe, back in chapter 4, verse 6. The same throne that John sees when he's raptured to heaven as a type of the church's rapture at the end of the church age. When he said, come up here and now I'm going to show you the things which must be hereafter. 
And immediately, verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto the em- an emerald. That's the throne here. That's the source of this river of life. Now, John saw it right after he's raptured up, and it has a rainbow around the throne. Do you, you all remember all those years ago when we talked about what that signifies there? What does the rainbow signify when we see it here? I'm not talking about the LGBTQ abominable garbage either, the six-colored rainbow, the rainbow of man. I'm talking about the Roy G. Bibb seven-color rainbow that God created as a covenant to remind us that he would never flood the earth again. So what does a rainbow show us? When we see it in the heaven, what is over? The storm is over. When John sees the rainbow round about the throne in chapter 4, the storm is over for the church. It's over. She's in heaven having been raptured out. And now this throne has a permanent place in the mansions that Christ is preparing for his bride. And it is the source of this river of life. Pure water, it says. Clear as crystal. The word in the original language is from where we get the word crystal. Crystalos. And this word also shows up in chapter 4. The same throne that's in chapter 4 is here. And the same water, I believe, that is in chapter 4 is here. It said here in chapter 4, verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. We have the same word used here. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Just kind of a, a thought process here. What do those beasts do around that throne over and over and over again, day and night, day and night, day and night? They repeat the same line. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I'm kind of a guy when it comes to church music that loves the old hymns. I love Keith Green. I was so glad to hear that old song this morning. I love that song. And I'm not the guy that likes to repeat lines over and over again. I'm not into the 7-Eleven songs, seven, time, seven words repeat 11 times. But repeating a line of praise to God is modeled in the Scriptures. Don't let, we don't need to let our preferences cloud what is glorious. Or just because people do something wrong doesn't mean the substance of something is wrong. Just because a lot of people who rest on the laurels of a pre-trib rapture and never go out and share their faith and are lazy and never speak up against unrighteousness, just because a lot of that happens doesn't mean that the doctrine is wrong. And just because a lot of praise music today is repetitive doesn't mean repetition in praise is wrong. There's some songs. That line, His mercy endured forever is repeated multiple times. These beasts say the same thing over and over and over again. Repetition's not bad in praise and worship. What's bad is when praise and worship is rote, robotic, going through the motions, and there's no heart behind it. And there ought to be truth in praise and worship. There's a, pra- there's a place for deep theology. There's a place for simple praise. And that's why the New Testament tells us to, to admonish one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs 
I would, I would say a spiritual song is more along the lines of, of repetitious praise. Hymns would be more along the lines of, of, of deep, uh, 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 a deep theology. Psalms would be more along the lines of what's written there in the Psalms. We have a hymn book in the Bible. You know, the Jews sing for, from the Psalms and their little praises in the synagogue, but they never sound like they're too excited when they sing. So uh, it's kind of depressing, actually. They actually have a, a, a man who's appointed as the singer in their synagogue service. And I've never seen uh, one of these uh, carry out his duties with what looks like joy and excitement. Uh, but anyway, just just a little side note there. But I believe that this same water in this sea of glass it, is what's now flowing uh, from the throne of God outward. The sea of glass, the sea of glass. We've talked about it. Job says in chapter or in Job chapter thirty-seven, the sky is said to be spread out like a tent and hard like a molten looking glass. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created a firmament, firmament and it divided the waters below the firmament from the waters above it. So there's waters above the firmament somewhere out there. And it's like a molten looking glass. It's hard. And on top of that sits God's throne, that sea of glass. In Job 38, 29, and 30, we've talked about this too. The hoar frost of heaven, the hoar frost that comes from heaven is sourced in frozen waters of heaven. Somewhere up there are frozen waters where time ends. Absolute zero. And there's a frozen expanse up there, waters above the firmament. And atop that is a sea of glass that is before God's throne. I believe that the heavens are God's throne and the earth are His footstool. And I don't believe that God is in some other dimension and that He's, in ex that, that, uh, he's uh, just something other. God reigns over this creation and somewhere out there he sits upon a sea of glass, a barrier, a sky barrier between us and him. And the only way to transcend that is, is, is to be paid for, covered in the blood and to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But we see that sea of glass in Revelation 4 and as the book progresses, we then see the sea of glass mixed with fire as the, the tribulation saints are crying out for vengeance. So the sea is melting. And then in Revelation 19, that sea opens and Christ comes down. The sea opens. In the new heavens and new earth, that sea doesn't exist anymore. But the waters, the healing waters, do. They flow from the throne of God. The same waters that compose that sea the crystal waters are the waters that flow from that throne. No longer frozen, but flowing. No longer a barrier, but access. That's an amazing thing to think about. When I think about this throne in the New Jerusalem and the, waters, the water source, we talked about the construction and the dimensions, and I explained why I believe that this city has a pyramidal shape uh, versus a cubic shape. And I can just see the throne of God is at the top of this pyramidal shape, 1,500 miles high. And out of that throne, the waters flow. And that water flows out and down through the, uh, the street of the city and brings life, brings life. When I read this description, 
of a water or a river of life, and then the details of it I'll get into more in verse 2, I'm immediately reminded of what Jesus said about himself. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. A river of life flowing from God's throne reminds me that Jesus Christ is the river of life. He's the only bridge between a righteous God and sinful man. The only mediator. Many years before Christ was born, the Buddha was asked, Buddha who never claimed to be God even though he's worshipped as God, never claimed to have the answers but claimed to be searching for them even though people teach he claimed he was God and, or, or, or worship him as God or, and worship him as if he knew the truth, something he didn't even admit to. Well, he was asked, how can we get to the Creator? And Buddha said, it's not possible. We're separated from him by a great sea. Now, ain't that interesting? That's exactly what the Bible says. Buddha knew more than NASA does. We're separated him, from him by a great sea. And the only way we could ever get to him or even know anything about him is if he sent a boat and brought us to himself. Wasn't that exactly what Christ Jesus is? He's a boat to bring us to God, to reveal God to us. In Christ is the Father revealed so that we can know him and we can be brought to him. There is a literal river of life in the new Jerusalem. But that literal river of life reminds us that Christ is the spiritual river of life. I'm also reminded of what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And based upon this testimony here in Revelation, we see that Jesus was speaking quite literally. Not some figurative dark symbol that has real, no real meaning, but, but literally. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 Uh. Jesus asked the woman at the well to get him some water. And she recognized that he was a Jew and was kind of surprised that he would ask a Samaritan because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Now, let me just say this. Before Nazis ever hated Jews, Jews hated people for no reason and would like to have killed every one of them. So, you know, you know, we can sit here and, 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 and uh, describe evil for what it is, but never forget the way some of the Jews treated Samaritans in Jesus' day was not a whole lot different than the attitude harbored by Nazis toward the Jews. So payday kind of has a funny way of coming sooner or later. Of course, God told Israel that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, but uh, notwithstanding, he was surprised, and then she goes on to say, well, I don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Uh, what is this living water you're talking about? Um, are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh this water shall never thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's literal. In the, in the, in the, in the eternal home of the bride, 
the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a well springing up from the throne of God, from whence comes water. And those that drink that water and have access to that water will never thirst again. Jesus was speaking quite literally. Obviously, the same applies to uh, the regeneration of our spirit. But there's a literal river, a real river of life springing up from the throne of God. Now, just as the heavenly Jerusalem here is not the restored and rebuilt Jerusalem that Ezekiel saw and shared with the Jewish captives, neither is this river of life the same river that's described in Ezekiel 47. There's a river of life spoken about there. But they're not the same. Just like the city and the temple spoken of there, given to Israel to make them ashamed, is not the same as the heavenly Jerusalem, the church's home, and the river of life spoken here. Keep in mind that this city is 12,000 furlongs, about 1,500 miles long, the width and the height. The city in Ezekiel is 18,000 measures. That's about nine miles uh, in perimeter. So very different, very different. Notwithstanding, let's look at Ezekiel 47 a minute because there's a river of life there. I won't read, you can read about the details in, in the first 12 verses of that chapter and then it gets into how the land of Israel was divided during the millennium. But here, these waters are not sourced in the throne of God. They're sourced in the millennial temple and they flow out east from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar, not a throne. And so they're sourced in a temple. The new Jerusalem doesn't have a temple. The waters are sourced from a throne. But these come out from under the altar. And you learn, if you want to get... We've talked a little bit about this. You know, the entire land of Israel is going to go through some major topographical and geographical changes when Christ returns and splits the Mount of, Mount of Olives and defeats the Antichrist and his armies and the kingdoms of this earth at the great battle of Armageddon. The water flows out from this altar in this millennial temple and 1,500 feet down the stream, Ezekiel sees that it's ankle deep. 3,000 feet out from the altar, it's knee deep. 4,500 feet out from the altar, it's up to the waist. And then a little over a mile from the altar in the restored land of Israel, it's unpassable. It's a large flowing river that you can't cross 6,000 feet out. We're told in verse 7 that there are very many trees on each side. Very many trees. And this river actually flows from the restored Jerusalem and that rebuilt temple out all the way down to the Dead Sea. And we're told that its waters heal the Dead Sea. It's no longer salt. It is full of fishes and it becomes a great fishing ground. The very place that is a desert right now in a barren wasteland becomes a great fishing ground during the millennium. And the fishes and all kinds of marine and aquatic life return to those waters. There are no fish in the Dead Sea. And that, that river heals those waters. Now the marshes at the south side of the Dead Sea where they harvest a lot of the rocks and minerals or the, a lot of the minerals that make the Dead Sea soap, all of that stuff down there, it won't be healed by this river. It's going to stay miry and it's going to stay barren. So we're talking about two different rivers here. 
But this one in Ezekiel speaks of many, many trees that line this river and produce fruit that continues to bear bumper crops every year. That brings me back to verse 2 in Revelation 22. We've seen a river of life that's not the river that Ezekiel shows the captives of Israel. Now we're going to see a tree of life that are not the trees along the river in Ezekiel. We're told in the midst of the street of it. This is a reference to the street of gold that we learned about the city uh, back in chapter 21, verse 21. And the street was, of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. The things men fight and die and stress over on this creation or in this earth, are what are gonna, we're going to walk on that in our heavenly home. But in the midst of that street, the middle of the street of the city, the gold Broadway, the golden bought Broadway, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we've got this tree that lines the median. There's a median in the middle of the street. Probably... Traffic goes one way on one side. Traffic goes the other way on another side on this broad way. And the median or the middle is lined with the tree of life. And the tree of life is found on both sides of this river of life. So what I envision is a river and a street that run right alongside each other. Kind of like what you see up in Cherokee, North Carolina when you go into town. I always liked how that river runs right alongside the road. And so in the middle of the street... And on both sides of the river that runs beside the street is this tree of life in abundance. And its roots are in the water of life. The tree of life that shows up here at the end of the Bible first shows up at the beginning of the Bible. So it's an interesting way how Genesis, a lot of things in Genesis end up in Revelation and they're fulfilled and they're brought to consummation. Proof that the Holy Spirit orchestrated the canon of Scripture and brought it together in the order He intended us to have it. But this tree of life first shows up in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It's planted in the midst of the garden along with a lot of trees and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man is barred from access to this tree in Genesis chapter 3. I'll turn over there for a moment. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, And out of, the ground God made, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also, a single tree, in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we get over to chapter 3 verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. There's the plurality of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims. Those were what, you know, beasts that John sees in Revelation 4. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So this tree of life 
man was barred from it. We don't know what happened to it. We don't know what happened to the Garden of Eden. We're told that the Garden of Eden, the source of the water in the Garden of Eden that watered the trees was the garden itself. And out from that garden, the, the, the water flowed into four heads or four tributaries. And each of those tributaries became great rivers. Two of those rivers don't exist anymore. Two of them do, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So we, we can see that the Tigris and Euphrates today have the same source. So the Garden of Eden was probably in that area. But the world underwent great cataclysmic changes with the coming of the flood. And so that garden uh, has gone away, just like the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is or what happened to it. And so has the Tree of Life. But just like the Ark of the Covenant, whether it's the one that Moses saw or the heavenly pattern, shows up in Revelation in heaven, so the Tree of Life shows up again. And here it's in the future home of the saints. In the Garden of Eden, we had a single tree in the middle of a garden. Here, access is reinstated, consummation, ultimate restoration, and now the tree of life is not in the middle of a garden called Eden. It's in the middle of the paradise of God. Another name for the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem is the paradise of God. We see this in Revelation 2, 7. So the tree of life shows up again in Revelation, but guess what? In chapter 22, verse 2, it in the first reference to it. It's already been referenced in Revelation. And it's the letter to the first of the seven churches. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus that lost her first love. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, what was in Eden was a single tree. Obviously, what's here in Revelation is not. Because this thing's on both sides of the river. It's in the middle of the street. And if the city's 1,500 miles wide or long, then the street's at least 1,500 miles. So we've got a tree that extends for miles on two sides of a river and in the middle of an avenue. So it's not a single tree. But it's written in the singular here in the text. But think of a statement like this. We do this in English all the time. The dog is a faithful animal. Or the dog is a good pet. Now, I'm not talking about the dog as a type, and I'm using the singular. I'm not talking about a specific dog. I could say this, and I've said this along the walk. The cottonwood tree along the riverbank is very stately. It's very majestic. The cottonwood tree. I'm not talking about a specific tree. I'm talking about a species of tree. That species of tree is very stately along the river. In fact, we see a lot of them walking across the Great Plains where there's not a lot of trees. And when you see trees, you know there's water. And a lot of times it's cottonwoods. And that species of tree is very stately and very majestic. Here we see the tree of life. The species is what's being referred to. The species is in abundance. That tree is a species. It's the daughters. It's the children of what was in Eden. And it's abundant and it's everywhere. We have an example of this at our own house. Many years ago when we first moved into that place and there was a lot of fill dirt out there from having to pull down some old barns and fix the driveway, we brought in the, a piece of a blueberry bush. I don't remember who gave us that. 
Vicki gave us that blueberry bush, and we planted it in fill dirt. One bush. And now go to our house, and that thing has just taken over that bank. It's one of the few things that grows every single year in abundance in our, in, at our home. I can't get the garden to do right. I can't get the fruit trees to do right. But the blueberries, we don't have to do anything. just took over. And we have so many blueberries, we don't know what to do with it. But now, that blueberry bush is an entire row of bushes. And so we have a species that literally lines the driveway. And there's fruit in abundance every year. Praise God. I think they're starting to finish up so it may be too late to come over and pick some but we've told folks they're welcome to come do that but that's what we have here we have a species or type a singular use for species all over the place in the new jerusalem the same tree that adam and eve were barred from accessing that their children were barred from accessing is now spread out across 1500 miles along the river and in the middle of the street. It's in abundance. Now you kind of see the same use of the singular to refer to the plural in Ezekiel 47 in that scene. And so I don't come up with this stuff just out of my own head. It's already modeled for us in the scriptures. 47 verse 12. And by the river on the bank thereof and on this side and on that side shall grow all trees for meat. Plural. All trees. Whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It, singular, shall bring forth new fruit. So we have a plurality of trees referred to as a singular in a single verse. And so that's what we have there in Revelation. An entire species, not just a tree. It's daughters, it's children spread out everywhere. Now, in the millennium, the millennial river that comes out of Israel is on, on both sides of it are all kinds of trees that don't lose their leaves and they don't run out of fruit. The entire land of Israel is going to be restored and it's going to be like the Garden of Eden once was. It will be watered, these trees will be watered by the water coming from the temple that flows into the Dead Sea. The fruit of these trees in Israel will be sustenance and it says according to his months. There in 47 verse 12. So according to the monthly cycle. And its leaves will be medicine. That's what's described here in Ezekiel. Again, this is not what we have in Revelation 22.2. It's not the same city. It's not the same river. And it's not the same trees. We're told that in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life will bear... Twelve manner of fruits. Literally, in the original language, it says twelve fruits. Now, this could mean one of two things. It could mean twelve types of fruits, or it could mean twelve crops of fruits. So, in other words, it could be twelve different fruits, a different fruit each month, or it could be the same fruit, and there's just a bumper crop every month. So, I don't know which one it means. It could mean either one. Either one's kind of incredible. Every month. A different fruit each month or a new crop each month? A never-ending supply. A never-ending supply that the saints, as was told the church at Ephesus, will have access to whenever they want. What Adam was barred from will have a never-ending supply and access. The leaves, we're told in verse 2, are for the healing 
of the nations. They're not medicine like the leaves in Ezekiel's vision. They are healing. They are therapeia, as it is in the original language. Where do you think, what word do we get in English from the Greek therapeia? Therapy. Therapeutic. They're therapy, not medicine. They're therapeutic. It's amazing how so many of the words we use commonly come from words that appear in the Koine Greek of the, of the New Testament. The common language of the New Testament. We, we allude to the Bible in our speech and not even know it. The Bible has such an effect on our society that our language today still alludes to it. And the people that hate the Bible use words that come from the Bible and don't even know it. God's kind of got a sense of humor, I believe. But their therapy... Healing of the nations. We saw in chapter 21 that the nations which are saved, what Zechariah tells us is the nations that are left of those that came up against Jerusalem and Armageddon, the ones that survive, we're told that they walk in the light of this city that's suspended above the earth. And we're told that the kings of the earth bring glory and honor to it and the gates are always open. And so... um, uh, This healing of the nations refers to healing that will need to happen because the earth will have been ravaged and and bombarded by plagues and judgments. And the nations that remain afterwards, there will be healing needed and that healing will be available. This word here or this phrase at the end of verse 2, the healing of the nations, is another one of those clues that we are in the millennium and the present creation that the new Jerusalem transcends. John first sees it in the new heavens and the new earth, but then he's taken aside, and we have clues that this city is also in the millennium before God melts these elements with fervent heat and gives us a new heaven and a new earth. And the uh, city of Jerusalem, like the word of God, not the nation of Israel, like the church, uh, like the lake of fire, are going to transcend and be forever testimony in the ages to come. The first clue we got was in chapter 21, verse 10. John's taken to a great and high mountain of this creation and saw the city. The second clue was in verse 24, nations that are saved. Saved from what? Well, left over from the battle of Armageddon. It says it there in Zechariah 14, 16, the survivors. Verse 27 of chapter 21, this third clue, things that are still around that won't be in the new heavens and the new earth are not allowed access to this city. There'd be no reason for 27 to even be there if we're talking about something that is in a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness and none of this abomination. There'd be no need to bar anything because none of it would be there. So this city is in the millennium and abomination is not allowed. And then we get our last clue here in verse 2. Two things. The word month in verse 2. Bear 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. Guys, month is a time reference in this present creation that is based upon the cycle of the moon. It's not a time reference for a new heaven and a new earth. We don't even know what the cycles will be in the new heaven and the new earth. I believe that the new Jerusalem will be suspended above the earth, above the sun and the moon, which will shine even brighter upon the 
dwellers of the earth during the millennium. And those cycles will still be there. They'll be for those below and those above. And every month, this tree of life is going to bear a new crop. And so it necessitates the presence of the moon because the, that's where month comes from. Go look at Genesis. God put those th- lights in the heaven for signs and seasons and month and years. That's where we get our time from. So that's a clue we're still in the millennium. And then the phrase healing of the nations. Healing is needed in the millennium, but not in the new creation. Remember in the new creation, God says, Behold, I make all things new. Ain't no healing needed in that. So this city is here in the millennium, and it'll be a source of healing. Now, this scene that we see here in Revelation 22, 1 and 2 is spiritually described, and it's applicable to us just as it was to the psalmist. When I think of these verses in chapter 22, I think of the very first psalm and the image that's described there. Go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a great psalm to memorize. And it's easy to memorize. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Man, we forgot that. When COVID came around, we forgot that blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let me be plain. All counsel that comes out of our government with regard to your health is ungodly. You ought to go read what the CDC says about how you can, about what things you can continue to do and enjoy and and prevent yourself from getting monkeypox. This monkeypox happens when, when, when homosexuals and perverts get involved in all sorts of abomination. And then what happens to their bodies is what's going to happen to people to get the mark of the beast. They start getting a sore. And then you start finding out that this stuff they think is innocent is not. You are sinning against your own body when you commit fornication. The Bible said it long ago. But all of this counsel the ungodly, we don't need to stand in it. We don't need to consider it. We don't even need to reason over it apart from God's Word. But the man who doesn't stand in these things, the counsel the ungodly, the the way of sinners and the seed of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law doth He meditate both day and night. And He shall be like a what? Like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. Now isn't that a picture of that tree of life there in Jerusalem? Planted by the rivers of water, the leaves never wither, the leaves never wither, the fruit is always there, And it prospers. Spiritually, if we'll delight in the law of the Lord, we can be a tree of life in this barren world, in this wicked world in which we live. That's what we ought to picture. That's what delight in God's Word does for us. So in a sense, we already have a tree of life that we can partake of. Why are we waiting? It's right here. Proverbs likens Four things to the tree of life that's pictured there in Revelation 22. Or the tree of life in its singular form that was pictured in the Garden of Eden. Proverbs likens four things to that. Number one, wisdom from above. Wisdom from above is like a tree of life. And that wisdom comes from this Bible. So if, we, if we'll submerse ourselves in this Bible, know this Bible, believe it, and stand upon it, we're already taking, partaking spiritually of the tree of life. 
Proverbs also, that was in Proverbs 3.18 in chapter 11 verse 30. Winning souls. Winning souls is likened to a tree of life. Sharing the gospel and winning people to the truth is like the tree of life. Chapter 13, verse 12, I believe. Let me double check on that. I can't read my chicken scratch. 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. God fulfilling something we've long desired and that we've had to wait for is like the tree of life. Hope fulfilled. And then finally in chapter 15 verse 4, the Bible says a wholesome tongue, one that doesn't speak perverse things, one that means what it says, one that speaks to edify and not to self-serve. That's like the tree of life. So the tree of life is compared to wisdom from above, winning souls, hope fulfilled, and a wholesome tongue. So we can partake of those benefits right now. We don't have to wait. And all of that comes straight from this book. We've already been given sustenance, life-giving sustenance. And we don't have to wait for a new Jerusalem to have it. We don't partake of it. Because we don't seek it. It's there. We just don't receive of it. In Revelation 2 verse 7. The church at Ephesus. The backslidden church. That had lost its ardor. Had seen its ardor diminished. It knew the right doctrine. It knew evil. And it spoke out against evil. And it hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the thing that Jesus hates. Yes, Jesus does hate things. But it lost its first love. And she's exhorted to repent and do the first works or else she would lose her testimony. That's a prophetic picture of the apostolic church that ended with John's day, A.D. 100. But Jesus gives an exhortation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto churches. To him that overcometh. Who is he that overcometh? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He that is born again. He that is born of God. He that has the Spirit of God born in him by grace through faith in the Messiah. To him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It seems here that this fruit, the leaves are for the healing of the nations, but the fruit is for the church. It's a special privilege of the church in the millennium. Or else it would make no sense to give a special blessing to the church that was just available to everyone. I'm not even sure the nations can even enter the city. I think the the leaves, the healing of the nations, the glory and honor is going to somehow be connected with the earthly Jerusalem and the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's going to be connected with the servants of Jesus Christ and servants of God living in that city go out and do His business. The internal affairs that we talked about are going to see in the next few verses. But I believe this will be special fruit for the church. A microcosm of the new creation that will be within the old for a thousand years before God remakes everything. In eternity, it will be fruit for all. That's just the way I see things here when we compare Scripture with Scripture. We're going to end here today... Um, 
Verse 3 is pretty powerful. There shall be no more curse. That's a clue, too, about where we are right now because in the millennium there will be nations that disobey. They do not bring their glory and honor and sacrifices to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, and upon those nations will be no rain, will be drought. The south end of the Dead Sea will be barren and a salty mire and will show the effects of the curse. But in this city will be no more curse, a microcosmic taste of what will describe all things in the new creation. So the earth's going to get a thousand-year preview, a thousand-year preview of what's coming. And what comes after the devil is finally and fully put away into the lake of fire will be for all, access to all. I'd rather get it early. I'd rather get it early than never at all. And so those are such are the promises given to us as a church. And again, Israel was given patterns. Israel was given details, glorious details. I mean, it's, pretty, it's a powerful enough thing to think about the new, the, the new earthly Jerusalem. The new portion for the prince, the Messiah. The new temple. The healing of that land and the Dead Sea teeming with life. Those things are great. The heavenly Jerusalem is even better. But Israel in captivity and in disobedience was shown these patterns that they might be ashamed and that those taken into captivity might strengthen their hands and stop fearing men and rather fear God. I think that... They ought to be the same for us. And I'll just emphasize what I've emphasized several times these last couple weeks. May we be ashamed and may we strengthen our hands. May we go back and revisit what Jesus Christ said to the churches in those seven letters. There are exhortations to seven churches and in five of those sevens there's rebuke. These patterns ought to compel us to go back. I almost want to go back and preach through the seven churches again. But they ought to compel us to go back and do what Jesus said. Repent and do the first works. He said to Ephesus, Be thou faithful unto death. He said to Smyrna, Repent for tolerating evil in your church. He said to Pergamos, To Thyatira, Hold fast what you have already. I can't even trust you with any other burden. But what, what you have now, hold fast till I come. Repent. Repent. For the spirit of Jezebel you've allowed in this church. To Sardis, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. You need to strengthen the things that remain. You need to repent and hold fast. To Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the earth to try all, to come upon the earth, to try all those that dwell upon the world. Now, that, that, that promise makes no sense if there's no pre-trib rapture of the church. It makes no sense at all. But because of faithfulness to the word, you are spared from these things. Hold to that crown. Let no man take thy crown, Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia. And then Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You make me want to vomit. You need to repent. You need to buy of me gold tried in the fire. You need to take white raiment from me and not from the world that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. And you need to open your eyes. Anoint your eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. We need to remember these exhortations and we need to embrace them. And these patterns ought to compel us to do so. I'm going to stop there today. Um,
I hope this is a blessing to you. Next week, we're going to talk about no more curse. And if you want to read Isaiah 11, you'll get a preview of what's going to be in the mountain of the Lord's house during the millennial reign of Christ. Not on the whole earth. The knowledge of the Lord will be in the whole earth. But the mountains of the whole of the Lord's house, which is the new Jerusalem, will have no curse like we have here. And you'll see what that looks like. You'll see what it looks like in terms of animal life. We see what it looks like in terms of plant life here. So that'll be interesting. Then we'll wrap up and get into the epilogue of the book. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, word today. Thank you for that tree of life, for that river of life that awaits the saints and your church in our future home, the home that you promised to go prepare for us, Lord Jesus. In your Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, you would have told us. And you went long ago to prepare a place for you. And you promised that you would come back again and receive us to yourself. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hasten that day, that you would complete this preparation and bring your bride home. We're thankful for the promises that we can trust and that we can wait for. And, Lord, as we wait for them, may they compel us to... Bear witness to the tree of life in our life. May it compel us to seek wisdom from above, to win souls to the truth. Lord, to trust in you and to seek hope fulfilled and to speak with a wholesome tongue. May they compel us to be like the seen in heaven in our own lives, to be wise and to be righteous, the way of the righteous. And to be like that tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit every season and the leaf never withers. And Lord, we're told there in Psalm 1 there are two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. Psalm 2 tells us exactly what the way of the righteous is. Jesus said, I am the way. Psalm 2 tells us it's the Son of God, the Messiah. (coughs) Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. And then Psalm 3 tells us exactly what that looks like. The psalmist who chose the way of the righteous, which is the Messiah, then could say when he was surrounded by enemies and surrounded by evil as we are today, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against thee round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Lord, help us to be those who do not fear, who do not cower and refuse to speak up like the leaders of churches in Germany in the 1930s. But may we not be afraid of 10,000s of people because we know what awaits us. And one day we will be able to partake of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. Bless the food we're about to eat. May it give us strength and sustenance. Strengthen us through the preaching of your word to go out and live for you this week and to be a light in the dark world. I ask these things in Jesus, the Messiah's name, the head of the church, the church's temple, and uh, the church's source of light in her eternal home. Amen.